I might be dating myself a bit, but the first time I ever voted, for real, not counting polls in grade school, was in 2000, during a general election between then-Governor George W. Bush and Vice President Al Gore. It was also the first time I remember not knowing who won the election late that night once the polls closed. Particularly because of a dispute in the vote totals in Florida, days turned into weeks until the U.S. Supreme Court, complete with justices with ties to the Bush family who should have recused themselves, voted to halt the recount in Florida, which made Bush the winner and President of the United States. By 2004, we were living in a different world. You see, our country had lived through the September 11th terror attacks in 2001. In the wake of 9-11, a couple of things happened. First of all, right afterwards, Muslim Americans and other groups, such as Sikhs and people of Middle Eastern and South Asian descent, were targets of vicious assaults and other hate crimes. But then also, the vast majority of Americans rallied around the president, regardless of political ideology. Bush enjoyed approval ratings over 80%, peaking at 92%. This approval was to the point that, at least for a while, any criticism of Bush, regardless of its validity, was denounced as unpatriotic. And the Bush administration used this goodwill to full effect. The Patriot Act, passed by Congress and signed into law in October 2001, expanded surveillance and detention powers in the name of fighting terrorism and gave the presidency more power. They started the war in Afghanistan, which is still ongoing to this day, supposedly to end the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and bring 9-11 architect Osama bin Laden to justice. But that's not all. Bush's hawkish advisors, such as Vice President Dick Cheney and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, decided to set their sights on Iraq and their longtime leader of Saddam Hussein under the pretext of continuing the war on terror, but really because of existing beef between Saddam and Bush's daddy, former President George H.W. Bush. After all, Iraq's secular Ba'athist regime was not related to al-Qaeda, rooted in part in Wahhabism and the ultra-conservative sect of Islam, or Osama bin Laden, who, like most of the 9-11 hijackers, was originally from Saudi Arabia. But that didn't matter to the Bush administration. As an aside, friend of the show, Jason Lee, suggested a while back that I discuss Middle East politics in a future show. Thank you, Jason, for that suggestion. Sometime this year, I will devote a series related to this. It has to be a series because it's impossible to condense this subject into one episode. So besides foreign policy and national security, I didn't care for Bush's domestic policies either. No child left behind. Government support to faith-based charities. His opposition to affirmative action. While having had much of his life, including his college career at Yale and Harvard, handed to him as a legacy from a prominent political family. By 2004, like a lot of other moderate and left-leaning folks, I found Bush's policies troubling and wanted to see a change. Going into the Democratic primary that year, I supported Howard Dean, who had previously been governor of Vermont. I liked that he was courting small donors, this was before it was cool, and that he wanted to focus on emphasizing common cause between working-class white Southerners and working-class Black Americans. Even though he wasn't articulate in how he initially expressed his sentiment, saying, quote, I still want to be the candidate for guys with Confederate flags in their pickup trucks, 
we can't beat George Bush unless we appeal to a broad cross-section of Democrats, end quote. Dean appeared to be the frontrunner going into the 2004 primaries, but by the Iowa caucuses, which he placed third behind Senators John Kerry and John Edwards, and his off-memed concession speech, he was a non-starter, and he was out of the race by the time I could vote for him in the Ohio primary. John Kerry, who was U.S. Senator from Massachusetts at the time, became the Democratic nominee. It didn't seem like a lot of people were super excited about him. It seemed all right enough. But he was similar to Bush. Both had attended Yale and were in Skull and Bones, a student secret society where membership is generally reserved for the sons of elites. Kerry, like a lot of U.S. Senators, had voted for the Patriot Act and the authorization to evade Iraq. And he didn't seem to have a clear message that made him a candidate people were stoked to rally around. I did have a John Kerry bumper sticker on my old beater car, an 87 blue Volkswagen, which I pasted over the Howard Dean one once Kerry became the Democratic nominee. It was the last time I ever stuck a bumper sticker to my car. Man, those are really hard to get off. But while I did have the bumper sticker, I can't say I was excited about Kerry. And a lot of Democrats weren't either. It seemed the only clear reason to vote for John Kerry was to avoid another four years of President Bush. When the general election rolled around on Tuesday, November 2nd, it was time to vote. I unenthusiastically punched my voting card for John Kerry in the presidential election. And by the time all polls were closed that year, it was clear that this was going to be much different than 2000. The election this time wouldn't take weeks to resolve. It was clear in pretty short order that George W. Bush was the clear and decisive winner over John Kerry. While the popular vote differential was roughly the same as the one between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the election 12 years later, 3 million, Bush had won the popular vote. And more importantly, he had carried 31 of 50 states and had 35 more electoral votes, making him the decisive winner and Bush would shortly declare, in light of the results, that he had a mandate, saying, quote, I earned capital in this campaign, political capital, and now I intend to spend it, end quote. In the 2020 Democratic primary season, there's a lot of talk about whether or not primary voters should decide on a nominee based on ideology and deeply held convictions, or based on electability. But one thing, that the 2004 election shows us here in 2020 is this. If the Democrats' only message in the 2020 general election is to vote for their nominee so we don't get four more years of Donald Trump, we will get just that. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. Last time, I discussed the message sent by Donald Trump's acquittal by the U.S. Senate earlier this month for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, which he was impeached for by the House of Representatives back in December. He started out with firing those who testified before the House in retaliation, including Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, 
Ukraine expert with the National Security Council, and Gordon Sundland, ambassador to the European Union, who both answered their subpoenas and testified. Trump has continued his wanton abuse of power by pardoning several federal convicts, including former Illinois Governor Rod Rogojevich, former San Diego 49ers owner Edward DeBartolo Jr., Michael Milken, the junk bond king, and former NYPD commissioner Bernard Carrick. This is on par with pardons Trump has granted earlier this term for friends such as former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio and Christian apologist and revisionist historian Dinesh D'Souza, except with the rubber stamp of GOP senators minus Senator Mitt Romney, Trump is going for these pardons with increased abandon, and as of this recording, it's speculated that he will also pardon co-conspirator Roger Stone and many others. While Trump is out here trampling over the rule of law in advance of November's general election, the Democrats are concerned with nominating their candidate. First, some background on how the nomination process works, specifically for president. How a party's nominee for president is chosen is not discussed in the U.S. Constitution. Parties weren't planned for by the founders. Alexander Hamilton and James Madison warned against factions in Federalist Papers 9 and 10, respectively. Parties nevertheless developed around the time the U.S. Constitution was being ratified, and realistically this was inevitable, as people are going to have disagreements and seek common cause with others who share their views. So because there's no framework for the nomination process in the Constitution, primary contests are run by the parties themselves. Both major parties, the Democrats and Republicans, undertake a nomination process that involves voters selecting their choice of presidential nominee in staggered contests in the 50 states, as well as Washington, D.C. and U.S. territories. We often call it the primary season because most states have primaries, Primaries are similar to general elections. Voters go to the polls and pick from a slate of declared candidates. Except in a primary, you have to choose which party's primary to participate in. Some states require voters to declare a party in advance, while others allow voters to choose when they arrive at their polling location. In Ohio, for example, you can decide which party's primary to participate in when you get to the polls. But once you choose, you're officially registered with that party. In future primary contests, you can switch parties, but under extenuating circumstances, polling officials can challenge your choice to switch. But in a few states, caucuses are held. In states and territories that hold caucuses, groups of voters meet in designated locations to openly discuss and vote for who to support. Unlike in a primary, where voting decisions are conducted by secret ballot, caucus decisions are discussed publicly. Advocates of caucuses prefer them because it allows communities to come together to discuss the direction they want their party and the country to go in, and it encourages more cooperative decision-making. Caucuses tend to have more limited hours than primaries since these are literally meetings. This feature is criticized because it leaves out disproportionately working-class people who are oftentimes not able to take off work to make those limited hours. Both parties generally hold caucuses in Iowa, Nevada, North Dakota, Wyoming, and territories such as American Samoa, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. In addition, Republicans use the caucus system in Hawaii, Kansas, and Kentucky, 
while Democrats in no states use primaries. Similar to the general election, votes in a primary or caucus don't directly select the nominee. The purpose is to choose delegates that are pledged to support a particular candidate in that party's convention. How those votes are allocated, whether it's winner-take-all, winner-take-most, or proportional, it depends on the state. In addition, Democrats have selected delegates, usually party leaders, who vote independently of the will of their party's voters, which are called superdelegates. Republicans have similar delegates who are party leaders, but they are bound to vote for the candidate who receives the overall vote in the states they represent. A convention is held by each major party over a few days in the summer to officially nominate a candidate for president. Usually by that point, it becomes apparent who the nominee will be, and they will pick a running mate, the person who will be vice president should they be elected. The nominee and their running mate are what we call the party's ticket. And the ticket for each party goes on to appear on the ballot in the general election. Now the thing is, to even get the nomination, a candidate has to win a majority over 50% of their party's delegates. If no one gets to 50%, then we get what is called a Burkert Convention. In a Burkert Convention, pledged delegates are released from their pledges, and revotes occur until a candidate gets a majority of the delegate votes. In the Democratic Party, it used to be that superdelegates, who in their case are unpledged and can vote for who they want, could vote on the first ballot. But reforms were made after the 2016 presidential election stipulate that they can only vote in the case of a broker convention on the second and any subsequent ballots. So let's get into the 2020 presidential election. First, the Republicans. Donald Trump is the incumbent. He's the current president, which on its own gives him an advantage in both stages of the election. But that advantage is formidable in the primaries. The only incumbent president to lose their party's nomination for re-election was Democrat Franklin Pierce in 1856. Now, a lot of times, incumbent presidents run unopposed in the primaries because of how strong their incumbency advantage is at that stage, and party leaders encourage it to save campaign funds for the general election and to keep their party looking united and their incumbent strong. In Trump's case, though, he is not running unopposed. Former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld is running against him, and former Congressman and radio host Joe Walsh was running as well, but dropped out after a poor showing in the Iowa caucus. But Republican leaders in seven states, Alaska, Arizona, Hawaii, Kansas, Nevada, South Carolina, and Virginia, have canceled their party's primary contests. Others may cancel primaries as well as the primary season rolls on. Both Weld and Walsh have criticized this move, stating that Trump wants to be crowned king rather than duly elected to a second term. But Republican officials have defended the cancellations, saying that cost, supporting the incumbent, opposition being weak, and keeping Trump strong are factors. They have also pointed to Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama having primaries canceled during their re-election bids, but unlike Trump, Clinton and Obama appear to have run unopposed. Donald Trump's party, indeed. The Democratic contests are a bit more interesting. Right now, there are a number of candidates running, but the field is narrowing, for the most part. 
And I say for the most part, because while a number of candidates, including almost all the candidates of color, have dropped out, billionaire businessman and former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg jumped in relatively late in the game. While Bloomberg declared his candidacy back in November, he wasn't gaining traction until the Democratic National Committee, in a controversial move, waived their rule requiring a minimum percentage of small donors for a candidate to participate in Democratic debates in order to accommodate him. Bloomberg is self-financed. Since then, he has risen in the polling and, as of this recording, has settled around third place. His place in polling hasn't manifested in the primary contest so far, as he has not received any delegates, but he has said that he is aiming for campaigning in earnest starting on Super Tuesday, March 3rd, when 14 states, the most at one time during the nomination season, will hold Democratic contests. But as of this recording, three contests have been held, the Iowa caucuses February 3rd, the New Hampshire primary February 11th, and the Nevada caucuses February 22nd, and the South Carolina primary is coming up February 29th. Those will all be in the books prior to Super Tuesday. The Iowa caucuses were fraught with irregularities due to technical issues with a smartphone app used to report caucus results. Senator Bernie Sanders and former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg were neck and neck, Mayor Pete with a razor-thin lead that translates into two more delegates than Bernie if the numbers hold. But additional records are scheduled Tuesday, and as of this recording, the result there still isn't final. The New Hampshire primary and Nevada caucuses were more cut and dry, Sanders winning both contests. After the Nevada caucuses, Bernie's strong victory has, at least for now, placed him in the front-runner's position, and it has centrist Democrats and never-Trump Republicans clutching their pearls. The idea of Sanders, a Democratic socialist who caucuses with Democrats in the Senate, yet is not actually a Democrat, winning the Democratic nomination for president, bothers those who either view Bernie's Democratic socialism as a liability or believe that socialism is inherently bad, to the point that some in this camp are claiming they will do exactly what they accuse Bernie supporters of doing when Hillary Clinton got the Democratic nomination in 2016, either voting Trump, voting third party, or staying home. While some of this vitriol may be related to Bernie's more confrontational speaking style, or his health, or even this perception that Bernie bros gave us Trump in 2016, which I'll address later, the fact that Bernie Sanders is a Democratic socialist is a big hurdle for some people. As for whether or not socialism is inherently bad. In the United States, we tend to have a skewed perception of what socialism is based on our role in the Cold War, an anti-socialist and anti-communist propaganda fed to us over generations, particularly the older generations. Younger people are less likely to view socialism as inherently evil. There's a difference between socialism and communism. To put it a bit more precisely, Communism is when the state owns the means of production. That state may not necessarily be democratically controlled, and historical instances of communism have generally been states run by authoritarian or totalitarian regimes. Communism is a subset of socialism, which is an economic system where the collective regulates or owns the means of production. But socialism doesn't have to mean communism. 
A Patreon bonus episode I released, I want to say about a year and a half ago, got into socialism more in depth. I'm going to release that publicly next week because I think that episode will explain the nuances better than I can in a few sentences. And it's relevant to this discussion of Bernie's democratic socialism and this divide between progressives and centrists more generally. And at the end of today's episode, I'll discuss my plan for releasing the Patreon bonus episodes publicly as a whole. What Sanders discusses in his speeches and interviews are not collectivist farms, such as what Soviet leader and killer of millions, Joseph Stalin, instituted in the Soviet Union. A good chunk of those millions dying precisely because of the implementation of collectivist farming. We're not talking authoritarianism that is characteristic of communism as practiced historically and even today in places like North Korea and Cuba. Democratic socialism is another subset of the socialist umbrella. And here, we're talking socialism run by democratic governance. And Bernie isn't really talking about going full socialist here. Much of what he's talking about is socializing sectors that really have no business being run by a capitalist ethos. He tends to focus a lot on education and healthcare, which is why so many young people like him. What he's advocating is not really any different than what most advanced democratic societies have. While healthcare and education systems in those countries may not be perfect, most people in those countries don't envy the immense debt Americans find themselves in due to healthcare and education, or that while the U.S. is touted as having an advanced healthcare system, access to this healthcare, including life-saving procedures, is dictated by whether or not you have money to pay for them. Look at the whole controversy in regards to the coronavirus and if a vaccine is created for it that, according to the Trump administration, not everyone is going to be able to afford it. That's a public health issue. And too many families have to use GoFundMe to pay for procedures that many Canadians and Scandinavians, for example, shell out exponentially less for, and they don't have to worry about going into debt so they don't die. It might sound like I'm out here caping for Bernie. I'm not. Right now, he's my second choice after Senator Elizabeth Warren, since a lot of other candidates I like dropped out. But I think it's important to understand what we're dealing with. And this is where I'm going to talk about the other issue related to socialism, the argument that Bernie Sanders as a democratic socialist is a problem because being a socialist is a political liability. In particular, Sanders would lose in the general election because Trump and the Republican Party would call him a socialist, and that would lead people not to vote for him. The problem with this argument is twofold. First, the GOP has, over the past several decades, called a lot of Democrats socialists. They called President Barack Obama socialist, and he governed in the vein of previous third-way politicians like the Clintons, center to center right. He stayed the course on the Patriot Act in Guantanamo Bay, and he even employed drone strikes on overseas targets. Even the Affordable Care Act was based on a Republican plan constructed by the Conservative Heritage Foundation and executed by none other than Mitt Romney when he was governor of Massachusetts in the early 2000s. And even with that, the Republicans still refused to support it when Obama put his name on it. When everyone's a socialist, no one's a socialist. Second, 
Part of the reason the Democrats lost so much ground over the decades to Republicans is because they regularly bought into Republican narratives and have moved further and further to the right as a result. Democrats want to raise your taxes. Democrats are like, oh no, and they cut taxes too. Democrats are soft on crime. The 1994 crime bill complete with mandatory minimums. Democrats are killing industry. NAFTA. Democrats are wasting your taxpayer dollars on the undeserving poor. Cut public assistance for poor families. And every time the Democrats cave to the Republican narrative, they gave the Republicans more and more power over the hearts and minds of the American people. And Democrats further alienated parts of their own base. The Democrats allowed the Overton window to shift so far to the right over the past 25, 30 years that fascism is fast becoming an acceptable option for too many Americans. We need to stop letting a demagogue in chief and a complicit, criminal enabling Republican Party control the narrative. Our country depends on it. February is the month of returns. In this month, Falling in Love Montage has returned for their first official episode of 2020. Sibling duo Helen and Valerie give their excellent and entertaining analysis of the 2015 movie Spy, starring Melissa McCarthy. Helen says that when it comes to Paul Feig movies, Spy is even better than Ghostbusters. Yes, that Ghostbusters with the all-woman cast. Why is that? It's a great episode. Definitely check that out. Falling in Love Montage is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Or check out their website at fallinginlovemontage.com. As the primaries are underway, one aspect of the Democratic side right now that is being highlighted is that there are a number of moderates, liberals, and progressives with strong feelings towards their candidates of choice and against certain other candidates, to the point that some are stating, oh, if this candidate gets the nomination, I won't vote, or I'll vote third party, or I'll even vote for Donald Trump. Some Democrats are very nervous about this turn of events and fear low Democratic turnout, or even defections, if a candidate is nominated that doesn't strongly appeal to all parts of the Democratic coalition. To be honest, I'm not worried about who will be the Democratic candidate. As a more progressive voter, the platforms of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders appeal to me more than that of the other candidates still in the race. And all of those who are left have major baggage or drawbacks of some sort, Warren and Sanders included. But I think it's a bit much to compare any of the current slate of potential nominees to the demagogue in chief. I'm not even all that worried that Democrats and independents who are considering Democratic candidates are at each other's throats on social media. We always have to keep in mind the world we're living in. Some of the negativity is manufactured, either by foreign actors or homegrown trolls who like to watch the world burn. But I also know that some of the vitriol is genuine. It's hard to know conclusively how much, but anecdotally, I know people in real life who fall in various slots in the anti-Trump spectrum, from never-Trump Republican to straight-up socialist and points in between. And they each have their candidate. And I'm encouraged by that, because it's not like this nomination season lacks passion. And we're going to need that for the general election. And speaking of that, can that passion translate into the general election? It can. 
But what many Democratic voters, especially centrists, are worried about is a repeat of 2016. When shocked Democrats were playing Monday morning quarterback after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump in the 2016 general election, a lot of them pointed out that in states such as Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, states that Trump won that Clinton thought she would win, there was a percentage of people who supported Bernie Sanders in the primaries who chose not to vote for Hillary Clinton in the general election. And in those three states, which were a key part of what the Clinton campaign considered her firewall, the number of Bernie voters who defected to Donald Trump was higher than Trump's margin of victory over Clinton in each of those states. And losing those states led to Hillary Clinton losing the 2016 presidential election. But is it fair to lay blame on Bernie Sanders supporters for what happened in 2016? No. And here are a couple reasons why. First of all, three quarters of Bernie Sanders supporters did vote for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 general election. And what about the quarter who didn't? Brian Schaffner, a political scientist affiliated with Harvard and Tufts University, examined the election's data in the wake of the 2016 presidential election. He found that of the quarter of Bernie supporters who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, half voted for Donald Trump in the general election, and the other half of that quarter either supported third-party candidates or stayed home. In that 12-13% who were Bernie Sanders defectors, Bernie voters who crossed all the way over to Donald Trump in 2016 was on par with defector percentages in other presidential races. In a 2008 presidential race, 15% of Hillary Clinton voters supported John McCain in the general election, and according to some estimates, 24% of Clinton primary voters chose not to support Barack Obama in November of 2008. So the bottom line is that the majority of Bernie supporters still supported Hillary Clinton in the 2016 general election. And while some didn't, the drop-off was on par with the drop-off in previous elections. No one gave Clinton supporters who voted for John McCain in 2008 a hard time. The main reason why it was such a big deal in 2016 is because the election was so close. And putting this into perspective, in an election where about 139 million Americans voted, the difference in the results of the election was three states and 79,646 votes total. To illustrate this point further, you can take this group of people and place them at the big house at University of Michigan on a Saturday in November to watch the Wolverines lose to the Ohio State Buckeyes, and there would still be room for 20,000 more fans and then some. Now, given that ridiculously close election, if those Bernie Sanders supporters who defected hadn't done so, would Hillary Clinton have won? Sure, but here's a second point to consider. Schaffner points out that we can isolate a number of different demographic groups and ask ourselves if a difference in how they voted could have made a difference. So, for example, in Michigan, Green Party candidate Jill Stein got around 51,000 votes but Trump only won Michigan by less than 11,000 votes. Another group that gets blamed for Hillary Clinton's loss is Black Americans. Black Americans voted overwhelmingly for Clinton in 2016. 13% of Black men voted for Trump and only 4%, 4% of Black women did. But turnout was lower in 2016 among Black people than in the two previous elections involving Barack Obama. I read comments on social media making it sound like Black Americans 
a key constituency in the Democratic Party must vote for whoever is nominated by the Democratic Party or else it's our fault Trump loses. I have always been consistent that I believe everyone who is eligible to vote should vote. But we need to understand something. We as Americans didn't get Trump simply because not enough Black Americans turned out for Hillary Clinton in 2016. A lot of the reason why Black Americans had lower turnout in 2016 was due to concerted efforts over a number of years by Republican state governments to make it more difficult for Black Americans, other people of color, as well as young people to vote. I will discuss this more in depth in an upcoming episode during the election season. But here's the honest, uncomfortable truth. Donald Trump got elected because a majority of white American voters in many categories supported him. 62% of white men, and despite Trump's atrocious record in terms of misogyny, 52% over half of white women supported Trump. Even a plurality of white college graduates supported Trump. So it wasn't just a matter of Trump liking the poorly educated. He liked well-educated white voters, too. The Bernie defectors in 2016 who supported Trump, according to Brian Schaffner, were more likely to be white and conservative than other Democrats and even other Bernie voters. I don't think we should relitigate 2016, but if we're going to talk about what went wrong, we need to start by being honest with ourselves and each other. But the bigger issue for Democrats is that while we're still looking back at 2016, we are choosing to leave a lot of votes on the table in the here and now. Around 40% of Americans eligible to vote, who are, of course, from all walks of life, did not vote in 2016. The Democrats should stop focusing on wooing Trump supporters. They have chosen to believe a con man for over three years. There's nothing we can do to fix that mentality except hand Trump a loss. And Democrats should focus on expanding their base of support. Just because people didn't vote previously doesn't mean they never will. It just means you have to give them a reason. And while many of us, myself included, feel strongly that Donald Trump has been so evil and cruel towards so many groups of people, and that alone should motivate people, the fact is that this isn't how everyone works. Of course, you're going to have people who won't act until their lives are adversely affected, which is somewhat of a privileged take, to be real about it. But then there are other people whose marginalization has been constant. Ex-evangelical educator Tori Williams Douglas made a very important point recently in a video on social media in regards to white liberals who implore black Americans to vote and get upset when some state they won't vote. She pointed out that black Americans have been marginalized and have dealt with discrimination long before Trump became president. What Tori said made me think of talks I've had with my mom. She is no fan of Trump. And yes, she does vote. But she doesn't see him as any more of a clear and present danger than any other president. After all, she did live through the 1960s. And there are people who just don't have the luxury of paying a lot of attention to politics. These are people who might work multiple jobs to survive, who may have families to support, and not enough resources to make it happen comfortably or at all, or people who have to fight through personal challenges, whether it's mental health, physical health, or both, or people who are in precarious, insecure situations. People who are too busy 
fighting to survive to fight a corrupt political system. Regardless of why some people don't vote, to get them to vote, we have to give them a reason to. And here's the point where I'm going to say this. And if you've listened to Pot Stirrer Podcast for a while, you know what I'm about to say. Who the Democrats nominate for the presidency doesn't matter as much as the platform they choose to run on. It is incredibly important for the Democrats to run on a platform with real ideas that truly addresses the issues that impact people. Healthcare, education, government accountability on all levels, from the presidency to the police, wages not keeping up with inflation, the wealth gap, immigration. Get these refugee families reunited and stop putting kids in cages. Treat white nationalist, right-wing terror like the real threat it is. And decouple the church from the state because Christian dominionism and all the fruits of it, it's killing our country. Does it have to be exactly my kind of platform? No. I will contend that a progressive platform will be much more successful than GOP light, especially if Democrats stop succumbing to Republican rhetoric and propaganda. But it's not 100% necessary. At the end of the day, though, you do have to give people a message to support, not just a figure to oppose. Give people something to vote for. In 2004, John Kerry's campaign had a difficult time articulating a clear, definitive message as to what he stood for, what he wanted to do as president, and why we should vote for him. And that was a huge reason why he lost. In a representative democracy, all candidates and party officials should understand that they need to earn the vote of the people, even those who are viewed as their core base of support. Being a part of a demographic group doesn't entitle a candidate or party to those votes. You aren't owed those votes. You need to work for them. So regardless of which candidate you support, implore them to do the work. So as you may be aware, this is the last episode of Potstirer Podcast as part of the Flying Machine Network. To be clear, Potstirer Podcast and the other existing podcasts on Flying Machine aren't going away, but Flying Machine is going away. I want to briefly address something I mentioned in the last episode. Some may be wondering about the Potstirer Podcast Patreon bonus episodes, since the Flying Machine Patreon is closing down at the end of this week. My plan is to release them all publicly over time. Some of them will be released in conjunction with relevant new episodes and events. So, for example, next week I plan to release a bonus episode where I discuss socialism, since socialism has been a topic of discussion recently on social media due to the popularity of Bernie Sanders. Others will pop up randomly either as a regular episode or as an extra for the month. If you have any requests for specific episodes, let me know and I'll be happy to post those sooner rather than later. I've had a suggestion that I release the one for this month publicly. I will do that one at some point, but because of the deeply personal matters I share in it, I think it best to hold off on that one for a bit before making it public. But anything else is fair game. I don't plan on creating my own Patreon or doing any other fundraising or monetization at this point, but that could change after early November. Until the general election, any money that you might have thought about giving to this podcast, send it to your favorite presidential candidate or send it to a worthy charity or nonprofit. I've been with Flying Machine Network for nearly two years, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. 
The podcasts of Flying Machine have always been very thoughtful and multidimensional, and it has truly been an honor to be a part of it. And their podcasts, I'm subscribed to and would continue to listen to them. So I hope you will too. Check out Falling in Love Montage with Helen and Valerie. Also listen to Divisive Issues with Ryan, Phil, Daryl, and Sly. And last but definitely not least, tune in to Stranger Still with Nick and John. And I want to give a shout out to Elle of Short, Colorful, and Loud. All of you guys are wonderful people. And I want to give a special thank you to our dear leaders, Malcolm and Justin, who founded and ran Flying Machine Network like a well-oiled flying machine. They put together this talented, fun group of content creators, and what they started and kept going was amazing. I will always appreciate them for the opportunity they gave me. Malcolm and Justin are both hardworking, talented, thoughtful, and just really good people, and I truly hope that what they do next is even more awesome and fulfilling than the greatness that was Flying Machine. They truly deserve it. It's like that song, Closing Time. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. So long, Flying Machine. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing is completely free and you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss out. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars on the app of your choice and leave a review. And y'all know I love to tweet, so follow me on Twitter at PotstirrerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.